Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for attending our special Closer Look at uh, COVID-19. This is a really important opportunity to get the most up-to-the-minute ideas about how we tackle COVID in the area of the biggest vaccination program this country has ever seen. We're incredibly grateful to our august group of speakers today. Uh, The reason I have the space background is essentially because the sky is no longer the limit when it comes to preventing, diagnosing, and treating COVID-19. Ideally, of course, we want to prevent it, uh, but we're really very pleased to have Robert Schooley, who we affectionately know as Chip Schooley. Um, He's really been a stalwart champion for developing our programs, including Return to Learn for our patients, Um, you know, has run global health initiatives that included eradicating HIV to the extent that anyone can, and, um, you know, really applying all that he learned as the former division chief um, for infectious diseases to this pandemic very successfully is on TV every time I turn it on and is a local um, rather famous person, but who's had not just national but international um, impact because of his work. Um, He is currently the um, vice chair of academic affairs. He's a senior director of international initiatives and co-director for the Center for um, Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics at the University of California, San Diego. So with us, and I think, you know, it's important to say he's a physician's physician. Chip School is the one you turn to when the going gets tough and you really want to help a patient. When it came to the phage therapy, I would see him in the ICU every single day. I'm a hematologist. Um, look after some pretty sick patients. Chip is always there. Similarly, Davy Smith, who is the current um, chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and um, Global Health, has been incredibly effective in terms of how do we intercede when people do get COVID-19? How do we predict the severity? How do we intervene? Um, He's also on TV just about every morning when I'm watching uh, the early morning news. So he's really been an important guide for the community, not just academically, but really practically. How do we intercede when people have COVID-19? And finally, Sheldon Morris, also in the Division of Infectious Diseases, has really applied his understanding of how you predict and prevent pandemics from his MPH at Harvard School of Public Health to understand how we prevent propagation of this virus in immunocompromised patients and other groups and uh, looking at it more from a public health angle. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Schooley because he will actually be moderating the question session. Um, We will have um, a couple of talks Um, and finish those talks within about an hour. Really want to get in-depth into COVID because we have three of the leaders in the field right here. And then Dr. Schooley will handle the questions through the Q&A, and then I'll come back to wrap it up. Um, So over to you, Dr. Schooley. Thanks so much, Dr. Jameson. It's a delight to be here today, and I appreciate very much the opportunity to be here with uh, Dr. Morris and Dr. Smith. Uh, What I'm going to do today is spend a little bit of time just introducing uh, COVID from the perspective of um, some of the lessons we've learned over the last year. It's really been like drinking from a fire hose watching our uh, 
uh, our uh, understanding of this disease move as rapidly as it has and our challenges uh, that we've, we've had in um, getting from where we are now to where we uh, need to be are, are ones that have been, um, have been uh, brought to our attention by paying attention over the last year. So I'm just gonna talk a little bit about some of the high points and low points, and then we'll have more detailed discussions about uh, therapeutics and prevention uh, from Dr. Smith and Morris. The, um, it's hard to believe that uh, the uh, epidemic is really uh, just a little over a year and a quarter old. It seems as if uh, we have been uh, dealing with this forever. At least that's the way my dog feels about it. Uh, and uh, it really wasn't that long ago that we were first seeing these images of uh, a um, food market in China, uh, in Wuhan, uh, located kind of halfway between Hong Kong and uh, Beijing, where we were beginning to hear uh, about a respiratory disease that was emerging uh, around this uh, this uh, this wet market uh, in the in December or so of 2019. In retrospect, the virus that we now know as SARS-CoV-2 had probably gotten into the human population a couple of months earlier than that. Uh, and as with most new uh, epidemics, it takes a while to recognize that something is uh, beginning to uh, to move about. Over the course of the month after we heard about it, uh, the virus spread rapidly throughout China. And by the end of, of that month, there were 20,000 cases in China. And many of us thought, boy, that is an incredible number of cases so rapidly. When you think about the fact that SARS, its predecessor, peaked at 8,000 cases uh, back in 2003. If you look at what the virus has been able to do since that time, uh, you can see now that there are 137 million cases uh, that we have counted globally but likely many more infections than that. It has accounted for almost 3 million deaths globally and over a half million Americans have died of this disease. The virus has uh, run a series of um, pumps up and down over the course of the last year in the US, um, several peaks, each one worse than the one before. We came down a terrible peak uh, over the course of the last two months uh, and are now down at a uh, what we hope is a plateau what we were concerned uh, may be uh, the beginning of another uh, rise as some of the variants that I'll talk about in a minute began to circulate more rapidly. Now, let me talk about the four or five lessons that we learned over the course of the last year in dealing with this. Lesson number one has to do with diagnosis. It was really important when this virus began to spread to know who had it, both from the standpoint of epidemiology and from the standpoint of prevention. Uh, within a couple of weeks of the sequence of this virus being uh, known, very highly accurate PCR and other tests were available uh, that could detect with a high degree of accuracy people who were infected with the virus. In the US, we stumbled in many, uh, multiple ways in terms of getting this, uh, this testing available to manage the epidemic. Uh, the FDA initially essentially made the only available testing uh, in the US uh, from the CDC uh, by not allowing academic laboratories to use uh, their um, uh, skills and uh, ingenuity uh, to be able to uh, support diagnosis of patients as they came to our hospitals, while the CDC spent six weeks trying to uh, develop its own test. Dr. Smith and others on this campus uh, had very highly accurate tests, but they were prevented from using them because of this CLIA model in which uh, um, clinical pathology laboratories uh, have essentially um, cornered the market in terms of testing uh, in, um, in clinical settings. And in this global pandemic, uh, that tension uh, cost us uh, several more months. And then finally, uh, there was a gross misunderstanding and mis, uh, 
um, lack of, uh, of understanding about how many tests will be available. The CDC initially thought they'd need to be able to do um, a couple hundred tests a week. Uh, they would be able to fly into some place when a test was uh, when a patient was uh, was um, potentially diagnosed and test that patient. And there was no effort and no understanding we'd have to ramp up to be able to do millions of tests a week to be able to stay ahead of this epidemic. Right now, uh, we're at a place where we can, uh, testing is widely available uh, and we have multiple different formats uh, which have been uh, highly successful. Where he have failed, however, is to move uh, what was a medical model into a commodities model. There is no reason for a test that we need to have available to support the population being um, uh, as expensive as it is now, given the true cost of doing these tests. Lesson number two uh, is we learned a lot about the pathogenesis of this disease early on. And what we were learning about the pathogenesis should have told us how to approach uh, prevention in a, in a much more rapid fashion. SARS-CoV, the uh, predecessor we dealt with uh, 18 years ago, and MERS that came on in between then and now, uh, both got to maximal infectivity after people had developed symptoms, which made it very possible to isolate people when they showed up in the hospital and prevent ongoing spread. This virus turns off the innate immune response early on. Uh, I'll show you, this is just to, to focus on the, on the left panel. Uh, you can see that um, uh, when you look at interferon induction, uh, the, uh, after you infect lung cells, uh, you can see that uh, in gray when there is uh, no virus present or in uh, red when SARS-CoV-2 is present, uh, there is no induction of any of the innate immune response markers. On the other hand, SARS-CoV, the original uh, SARS virus, in induces a potent immune response uh, with interferons and other cytokines. And this uh, uh, signals the host that they're sick and uh, causes symptoms and also contains the virus. The SARS-CoV-2 in red grows three and a half times as rapidly in lung explants as SARS-CoV and grows in people who've been infected to very high titers in the lungs uh, to the point that uh, people, even before they're symptomatic, are shedding large amounts of virus. Lesson number two was uh, part two, uh, is that despite the fact that we knew all this, uh, we continued to try to use outmoded approaches to counsel people about spread. We got fixated on things like fomites, which will play a role in influenza. This is not influenza. Uh, and uh, we kept trying to call this a virus that was spread by droplets, uh, not by small aerosols. Now, why is this important? Well, the public health model uh, that's used in infection control um, settings uh, has developed this dichotomy over the years that classifies pathogens into those that are spread by droplets, uh, and these are uh, pathogens that putatively are spread in these large blue bubbles that fall to the ground within six feet, uh, and aerosol pathogens, that ones that can spread much further. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the classifications of things as aerosols has been extremely conservative. Measles is known to be an aerosol, and for a long time, no one wanted to admit that SARS-CoV-2 was an aerosol. And what that led to was advice about uh, prevention of transmission, both in the hospital settings uh, and in the uh, community that were based on uh, the fact that uh, we just needed to protect people who were closer than six feet. When in fact, uh, even within six feet, most of the virus is spread from one person's lungs to another as these viral particles are uh, descend deeply into the lungs and cause disease. 
Uh, that has a lot of impact in terms of how we live together and what we've done. Uh, when people exercise, they expel more uh, air and more virus. Um, and we know as well that in gems, the virus can spread from presymptomatic people. We know that there can be droplets that spray when people do uh, exercise, sing and yell, play instruments. Uh, but we also know that at the same time, these aerosols are spreading much further. Uh, we know that because these aerosols disperse in the community, of course, they're in, in space, of course, you're going to see more people get infected if they're close to someone. But that doesn't mean they're being infected because of the droplets. Aerosols have the same, uh, the same um, characteristics. And finally, people have said for a long time, no one has, uh, has, uh, has isolated infectious SARS-CoV-2 from the air. In fact, uh, several groups have done that now, uh, and we know that uh, this is quite uh, uh, easily done if you use the right techniques. And finally, there have been multiple different episodes of long-range uh, aerosol spread, including uh, church choirs and other settings that make it impossible to, to claim that all spread is droplet-induced. Lesson number three uh, is that uh, it was going to be very important to develop a safe and effective vaccine. And here, I have to say, uh, we deserve uh, a close to an A for this. Uh, the scientific community was left to do this, and the scientific community did very well. And much of what happened was built on what we learned from the vaccine science and human immunology that was driven by the effort to develop an AIDS vaccine over the last 30 years. We were smart because we placed bets that some vaccines um, would work and we pre-purchased them before they'd even been, be sh been shown to, uh, to be effective while the testing was going on so that if the vaccines turned to be effective, we could get them out to the population. And we focused on what we learned very quickly about how the virus gets from cell to cell. Spike proteins on the surface are the key uh, mechanism by which the virus uh, attaches to cells that it um, binds and were the key uh, targets in vaccine development. All of this science uh, has now gotten us to uh, several different types of vaccines. Uh, in the US, uh, we have messenger RNA vaccines uh, that are available that are extremely effective as I'll show you in just a minute. Uh, there are also viral vector vaccines uh, uh, in which we use, uh, in most cases, a crippled adenovirus uh, to be able to present uh, viral antigens uh, to uh, people that need vaccination. And there are other vaccine approaches using protein subunits and activated virus or classical approaches that are also under development. But the vaccines that have been developed are extremely effective. This is the, uh, these are data from the phase three study of the, um, of the um, uh, Moderna vaccine. And what you can see is that uh, in blue, the people who received the placebo continued to be infected at the same rate, but within about 12 days of getting vaccinated, those who received the actual uh, vaccine very quickly almost ceased having infection and um, virtually uh, uh, shut off any severe disease. So these, these vaccines are extremely effective. Because we pre-purchased them, we were able to get vaccines out around the country uh, the darker the state, the more successful we are. And you can see California, uh, some parts of California, the Bay Area and San Diego have done quite well. Other parts of California have lagged. Uh, and we are not one of the leading states in terms of, of vaccine deployment. But in places where vaccines have been deployed, and as we've done it, you can see that as more and more people are vaccinated, uh, the uh, rate of rise of new cases uh, is beginning to blunt it's clear we're headed in the right direction uh, with these uh, AIDS, uh, with these coronavirus vaccines. Another uh, important uh, aspect was that we, we uh, took 
multiple shots on goal. And that was important because we assumed that not every uh, approach we took would go without a hiccup. And by having uh, different contingency plans, uh, we, could all, we could react quickly when we began to see issues we needed to take a closer look at. Recently, as you know, there have been concerns that the adenovirus vaccines may be associated with a very unusual uh, type of a, of, of a uh, blood clot uh, that occurs in the cavernous sinus just behind the eyes. It's seen extremely rarely, one in a million people, a very rare event that wouldn't be seen in vaccine trials that only uh, are undertaken in 20 or 30,000 people. Uh, it's also been seen in the other uh, vaccine that's made with uh, adenovirus, but very rarely seen uh, in people who receive this mRNA vaccine. This has led to a pause in the use of the uh, cavernous, uh, of the um, adenovirus-based vaccine in the U.S., while we look at more, more carefully at the data, but because we have multiple alternatives, it allows us to keep vaccinating to try to push things down. Another lesson we learned uh, is that this virus, like other RNA viruses, will diversify, and we develop surveillance plans and contingencies for how to deal with this. The variants we worry most about now are the so-called British variant. Uh, this one is one that is able to spread about 60% more effectively than the variants we had for the first eight months of the epidemic. Uh, and then variants that have been called the South African and Brazilian strain that are very similar, they're able to spread more rapidly. But in addition, they have a key mutation that makes them less susceptible to some of the therapies that Dr. Smith will be talking about uh, and less susceptible to some of the vaccines that are marginal, but still highly susceptible to the mRNA vaccines. When these variants that are able to be transmitted more rapidly hit the population, this shows what happened in the UK when the British variant arrived, you can see they very quickly overwhelm uh, what was present uh, in the past and become the predominant strain. This British strain now accounts for about 50% of the uh, vaccine, of the viral strains in the US. This shows the British variant, the Brazilian variant, and the South African variant, again, present in virtually every state in the country and growing rapidly. And the final lesson uh, that I think we learned from this uh, disease uh, is that we allowed the virus to divide us rather than to unite us. Uh, this, we learned a lot scientifically, and we needed to take what we learned scientifically and use that to develop a common purpose uh, to end this epidemic. Uh, we're at a point right now that we have vaccines that we can uh, take uh, to the world. And it's important for us not just to unify in the US about uh, how to uh, approach this disease, but to unite around the world. Because if we allow this virus to replicate elsewhere, we're going to be uh, allowing people who um, uh, could be uh, 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 saved, uh, continue to die from this disease, and we're gonna allow the virus to continue to uh, replicate, continue to diversify, and ultimately uh, set ourselves up for wave after wave of this uh, disease. So to close, I'd just like to say that we're all in this together, uh, and the things that I think we should learn is that science matters, preparation and competence matters, and it's important to be transparent and honest. Uh, we're all in this together. So thank you very much. Uh, and what I want to do right now is um, turn the uh, 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 stage over to my colleague, uh, Dr. Davy Smith, uh, who is going to talk in more detail about some of the therapeutic interventions that have been developed uh, in parallel with these, um, with these very successful vaccines. Dr. Smith. Thanks, Chip. Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Um... So today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, our antiviral 
progress, so vi- uh, treatments to uh, treat uh, the virus during the early stages. Just to point out, there's been a huge scientific effort both on the vaccine side that Chip talked about, but also on our treatment side. There's over 590 drugs in development that people are disclosed. There's 400 trials being reviewed by the FDA for COVID. There have been nine COVID-19 treatments that uh, currently have uh, authorized emergency use, and then one that has been uh, approved by the FDA for treatment. And I'm going to focus on um, the antiviral part, but let's go through the natural history just real quickly. So it starts off with somebody being exposed to the virus. Everybody who's been exposed and who will eventually be infected, have no. they all start off with no symptoms. But most people go on to progress to mild symptoms, some progress to moderate symptoms, and then some even progress to severe or very life-threatening disease. At the beginning, it's all about the virus. The viral load goes up and then it goes down. So if we're going to target the early stages of COVID-19, we need to use antivirals. Later in the process, uh, there's something about the virus that triggers inflammation, and that is when the mild disease changes to moderate to severe disease. And in that setting, we'd want to use immune modulators. Also in the later stages of the disease, uh, people can become hypercoagulable. They can develop blood clots, um, oftentimes related to inflammation. And in that setting, perhaps anticoagulants are being uh, used there. And all of these are being tested for treatment at these various stages. It's very important to know what stage somebody's in to know what treatment to give them. And today I'm going to talk about stopping early COVID-19. So it's all going to be about these antivirals. So I'm going to give a little bit of virology life cycle and just kind of walk through some things. But here's the virus. It has these little spike proteins. It uses those spike proteins to engage a human receptor to get into the cell. Perhaps you could use fusion inhibitors to stop that. Um, This receptor is called the ACE2 receptor, and perhaps we could block that. There's also a uh, a protein that is needed, a protease that's needed in humans, um, that the virus co-ops for its own purpose, and perhaps the, we can inhibit that protease, and that would stop the virus from getting into the cell. There's also a thing called passive immunization, which I'll talk a lot about in a second, but perhaps we can repurpose some uh, processes that we learned a long time ago about that. There's also immune modulators. So we have immune system responses that are antiviral responses, and perhaps we can use some of those or increase uh, those um, immune immune modulation to stop the virus. Once the virus gets in, it makes copies of itself through an enzyme that it has called RNA polymerase. Maybe we can make uh, inhibitors specifically for that protein. The virus also gets into this little endosome over here, and perhaps we can lock it in by acidifying that endosome. So all these are different targets that our people are looking at. One of the big ones that was talked about first were the acidification of these endosomes. And that's exactly what hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin were supposed to do. Um, And there were some trials, including one that I was trying to get off the ground that was trying to look at that, see if it worked. And the reason we wanted to know was that if it didn't work, we wanted to stop having people use it. And if it did work, we'd hope to use it. But politics got in the way, something that Chip sort of mentioned about um, dividing us. And we were never able to figure out if it would work for early COVID. So let's go look at some other things. One would be passive immunization. 
Well, a little bit of history lesson here. The first Nobel Prize in 1901 was for passive immunization. And what scientists did was they took diphtheria, which is a bacteria and it has a toxin, and they grew it up in the laboratory and then they injected that toxin, uh, killed toxin into a horse. And that horse made an immune response, an antibody or an antitoxin, what it was called. And then they took the blood out of the horse, they concentrated the plasma to make these antitoxin rich sera, and they used it to treat kids who had diphtheria um, as a passive immunization and saved hundreds of thousands of kids' lives. So can we do something similar with COVID-19? Well, we can have somebody who got COVID, but they did well, and uh, they made antibodies, and we could take blood from them uh, through a process called apheresis and plasma, um, and this is what we call convalescent plasma because this patient has convalesced, but we're going to take those antibodies that she made, and then we can give it to somebody else who's really sick and not doing so well with COVID-19. That's the uh, goal. And there was a recent paper in January of this year showing that in convalescent plasma, if it's used within 72 hours and the person is older uh, coming into the hospital, and oftentimes if they have comorbidities such as uh, obesity or diabetes um, or kidney disease, then convalescent plasma did improve their um, illness. So here on the y-axis is proportion of free disease. And those people who got convalescent plasma did a little better than people who did, who got placebo. Unfortunately, there's been other studies that have come out since then, including multi-center studies of uh, convalescent plasma and hospitalized patients um, that have been stopped because they've shown no efficacy. And this is just one that was recently reported at a conference last month. So there's another way to possibly do passive immunization um, using new tools that were also made um, popular honed during the HIV research time, as uh, Chip talked about. And one of these is called monoclonal antibodies. And what, how it works is that somebody who caught the virus makes antibodies and they make a whole bunch of different kinds. And perhaps there's one that's really, really good. And we can pluck that antibody out and we can put it into a cell and that allows it to be expanded. And then we can make lots and lots and lots of that one antibody. So mono being one, clone being clone. So we have one clone monoclonal and turn it into a treatment. And sometimes we can have more than one monoclonal antibody, which we call a cocktail, but then we can use it to treat other people with the virus. So this would be the goal here. And there's a like 25 and maybe even more companies now out there making these monoclonal antibodies as treatment for COVID. And maybe you've seen some in the news. So here's a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies from Regeneron. And here in this study, let's just look at this graph one moment. So on the y-axis is the amount of virus that somebody has in their nose. On the x-axis is the number of days after they come in. And some people were given a placebo. And then the other people were given different doses of this cocktail, this Regeneron cocktail. And you can see that um, these lines start to diverge, that the people who got the placebo overall continued to have higher viral loads than either one of the groups that got um, the Regeneron monoclonal cocktail. And this meant that they got an emergency use authorization from the FDA. Also, President Trump um, got this exact cocktail when he got COVID. Another monoclonal antibody called bamlanivimab made by Eli Lilly 
uh, was also tested. And here I'm going to focus on symptoms. On the y-axis is how many symptoms somebody has. And on the x-axis is how many days after they were starting to get the therapy. Some people got placebo there in the red line, and some people got the drug here in the blue line. And you can see that they diverged. So the people who got placebo had more symptoms than people who got famlinibumab. This drug also got an emergency use authorization and is now being used for high-risk people who have COVID. The, similar, the same uh, drug, bamlanivimab, was used in a prevention study given to people in the nursing homes. I don't know if anybody remembers, but back this time last year, there were lots of people who were dying from COVID-19 in nursing homes because it basically spread like wildfire. So Lily and other uh, research groups came together and said, okay, let's give people who are in nursing homes this drug and see if it prevents them from getting infected. And sure enough, people who got bamlanivimab got infected less than the people who got placebo. Y-axis is the proportion of people who got um, the infection. And this is just to show similar data about the viral load. Just you can look at this axis on this, this figure here. This is the change in viral load. This is the study day after somebody started the therapy. This is the placebo. And you can see that the people who got bamlanivimab plus another monoclonal antibody called atesivimab um, that they put together in a cocktail, they had lower viral loads than people who got placebo. So, okay, viral load, symptoms, getting infected. Um, what we really want to know is can we keep people out of the hospital and can we keep people from dying? So here is bamlanivimab and atessi, and uh, here is over here is hospitalizations by any cause. People who got placebo in these studies had a 7% rate of hospitalization versus people who got the placebo only had a 2% hospitalization. And then when you look at deaths, the people who got placebo 10 of them died in that study versus nobody who got uh, the monoclonal cocktail died in that study. Both of the, this got an emergency use authorization, this cocktail combination, and the National Institutes of Health guidelines said this should be used for people who have high risk um, criteria for causing problems with COVID-19 should be eligible and should get um, this drug. So just a quick uh, recap on monoclonal antibodies. At present, it's only for people who have high-risk conditions with early COVID-19. It is not for people who are already hospitalized. There are now multiple studies looking at monoclonal antibodies for people who are hospitalized, and they either show no benefit whatsoever or perhaps even worse. Um, so right now, it is only for people who high-risk who have start of symptoms. Uh, so they don't need oxygen. There's no increase in their usual oxygen needs. And the other good news is there's going to be future routes given for these monoclonal antibodies. Right now, it's kind of a pain because we have to do it as an intravenous infusion. But companies are coming up with intramuscular, so like a, an injection, like a, you can think of like a vaccine, or sub-Q, like a diabetic shot, or even inhaled agents. And we're hoping that this really helps get this, these drugs out to more people who could use them. But other big notes are that EUA, emergency use authorization, does not mean full approval, and the FDA has explicitly encouraged more uh, research before they can grant that full approval. 
So I want to talk a little bit about variants because um, it's a lot in the news and Chip talked about it at the beginning. But among RNA viruses, which is what a coronavirus is, it has a modest mutation rate. It actually has a little bit of a proofreading mechanism. So it doesn't mutate as much as others, but it does. And I want to go walk through one example of why that's important. So there's this mutation called D614G, and it's in the spike protein of the virus. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Um, it's been shown to increase infectivity, and it's been shown to increase transmissibility in animal models. But how us virologists talk is we think of a protein, let's say a spike protein, is a bunch of just amino acids. And each one of those amino acids has a letter. And in this case, it's aspartic acid is the D, and the G is glycine. And let's say we just have a group of letters that spell out Dr. Davy Smith. And at the 614th position, there is a D um, that in the new virus, the new mutant that has happened, it changes to a G. So that's what we would call D614G. Um, and that's exactly what COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2 did. It changed this one amino acid um, to increase its infectivity and to increase the amount of virus it produces when it infects somebody. Why this is going on is because the virus was originally well adapted to bats and it probably liked having that aspartic acid at the 614th position um, a lot. But now that it's in humans, it, it doesn't interact as well with our um, receptors so much. So it changed it to a glycine and then it allowed it to grow better. And we are expecting that to be the case with all these variants that we see. And in fact, here, this shows that throughout the world, back in February, all the viruses basically had a D at that 614 position, but now they all have a 614 G. Why does that matter? Well, for treatment, um, not only could it be more infectious and perhaps more deadly, but for treatment, these antibody cocktails might not work as well. So here is uh, B117, which is also which was first found in the UK. Then there's this D614G that I talked about, and there's this other one called B1351, which was first found in South Africa. And these are the different monoclonal cocktails that we are currently studying for treatment, and they all seem to work for each of these variants. This is the amount of virus that's uh, neutralized by these variants um, by these monoclonal antibodies. But this variant, 351, completely knocks out um, these uh, Lily, Bamlanivimab, and Atessi compounds. So as these variants become more prevalent in the population, our utility, our usefulness of some of these monoclonal antibodies isn't going to work so much anymore. We have to keep up with that. And just to show a big uh, complicated table is that there are tons of variants that people are watching and we're looking very closely at how well are they still work for these variants and if any of these variants um, become resistant to uh, the therapies that we have. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about cows because I like the picture. So there's a nice company that has figured out how to transplant a human immune system in a cow. A company is called SAB. And they then have these cows that make lots and lots of blood. Um, and lots and lots of plasma, and they vaccinate these cows and the, with the coronavirus vaccines, the spike proteins, 
And then the cows make these antibodies, lots and lots of antibodies and lots of different kinds of antibodies. So rather than monoclonal, it's what we call polyclonal. So different types of antibodies. And then they take out the blood plasma from these cows, they concentrate it, and then they use that sort of as a super concentrated convalescent plasma. And since it's a human immune system in the cows, there's less uh, reactivity to the plasma. So those are trials going on right now um, using that compound. So another one that we can tackle is this RNA polymerase. So how to stop this viral protein from replicating the virus. And there's a new drug called, well, it's not that much new, it's kind of repurposed, but it's uh, EIDD. And it was made by Ridgeback, which is then bought by Merck. Um, and it uh, stops that enzyme. But it has activity against other RNA viruses, such as Ebola and flu and um, other coronaviruses. And how it does is how it does it is it causes that enzyme to just go crazy and cause lots of mutations, which sounds horrible, but actually increases the mutations so much that the virus just can't survive. It can't be good enough to make good copies of itself. And here is the y-axis and how much virus is being made. On the x-axis is how much concentration of the drug. And you can see there's a big drop. If you get enough drug in, the virus just messes up too much and it can't make um, good copies of itself. And then they tested it in ferrets. So cute little ferrets can get infected with coronavirus. They give it multiple doses at multiple different times. And these are just looking at the different ways. But in each of the cases, here's the black line is a placebo, but each of these other colors, when the ferrets got the drug at different time points, it was all able to stop the viral replication. And this drug is currently in trials in humans to see if it can stop early COVID. And here is recent data showing that in 175 people on day three after starting the drug, there really wasn't much difference between the people who got placebo here in purple and the people who got the active drug yet. Um, but then at day five, the people who had placebo still had drug that they could detect, but nobody in the uh, who got the drug themselves versus the placebo could um, be detected. So another one is this protease inhibitor. So we have these things called serine proteases and the virus wants to use one of those. And maybe if we can just block it for a little bit of time, we can stop the virus from going. And one of these drugs of the protease inhibitors is called Camostat. And we've known about the drug for a long time because in Japan, they use it for pancreatitis and they've been doing it since 1985. Um, we don't use it here, but it has been used and has a long is a safety, uh, safe drug to use. But we know that other viruses, use, other coronaviruses use that same protease. And here is MERS, SARS-1, our senior, and SARS-2, our junior, versus this other uh, drug, this other virus, uh, VSVG, that doesn't um, use that protease. But if you use that inhibitor, you can see that it knocks down the viral replication for all these coronaviruses, including SARS-2. And this is done in the lab. So maybe it'll work in humans. And that drug is also being tested. And then another immune modulator that maybe many people have heard about is interferon. We've used it for many different viral infections along the way, like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. So perhaps we can use it here for uh, COVID-2. And uh, here are both two forms of it, interferon alpha and interferon beta. It's grown in a 
petri dish in the lab. Here's the amount of virus that's grown. And here's the number, the doses over time. These are the doses that are given. And you can see that each of those um, at increasing doses drive down amount, the amount of virus that we can see in the petri dish. And then when we tested in humans, in terms of actually inhaling in interferon, people report less breathlessness. So here in the blue line is how many people reporting how breathless they are while they had COVID-19 versus people who inhaled a placebo. And uh, you can see that people who inhaled a placebo had greater amount of breathlessness than people who actually got the drug. Then they also looked at people who were <clears throat> recovering and people who got the drug uh, recovered better. That's why it's over here on this side. Um, they got discharged from the hospital faster and they, they reported having a better outcome than people who only got placebo. So this is uh, was only in 100 people. So more people are now being studied to see whether or not this actually works for people with early COVID. So in summary, antivirals are being developed for SARS-CoV-2. Antibody-based therapies such as passive immunization that we talked about are promising. And some have gotten these emergency use authorizations for people who are at high risk for progression. But they're only currently available by intravenous. But new versions are coming and going to be tested to see if they work. Unfortunately, these monoclonal antibodies can be thwarted by viral evolution, and we're already seeing that happen, and we're going to have to stay on top of that to make sure that our treatments keep up with the mutation of the virus. Other things like serine protease inhibitors, viral polymerase inhibitors, and interferon, and others are currently in trials to try to get out to the best therapies possible for people who have um, COVID-19. And I'd just like to acknowledge there is a trial going on at UCSD and actually all across the world called Active 2. It's part of the U.S. government's response to COVID, also known as formally as um, Operation Warp Speed. And it's testing uh, many of the therapies that I just showed today. Um, and our website is down here called riseabovecovid.org if anybody gets a chance to look at it. And then um, he, Dr. Shazlon gave me some slides and Croy was able to give me some slides as well for some of these um, agents. So I'm going to stop there and turn it over to Dr. Morris, Sheldon Morris. All right. Thank you. Uh, there we go. I'll put, uh, I'll share my screen then. Um, and thank you for having me speak today. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with my colleagues here today. Um, I, I titled my talk, uh, COVID-19, Note from the Underground by the Numbers. Uh, and Note from the Underground is actually a novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky. He was famous for writing Crime and Punishment. He's a Russian novelist from the uh, czarist times. And his thesis was that part of life was experiencing suffering. And so it, it struck me that we've experienced a lot of suffering in the past uh, year or or more, and uh, as a you know, as a nation uh, in all over the world, because of COVID nineteen. So, in his terms, we really are experiencing life in a big way. Um, I also said by the numbers because by the end of this talk, I want you all to be able to do simple calculations and uh, be able to you know make some decision making on your own. Because uh, you know, one of the things I did do, I mainly do clinical trials now, but I did train in doing, you know, uh, infectious disease epidemiology, and and we have some wonderful modelers here at UC San Diego that have created very uh, intricate and and uh, excellent models for uh, COVID nineteen. But uh, 
it all comes down to you have these buckets of where people are and 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 if they are in the first bucket the s bucket they are susceptible there are people that can get infected with uh whatever the infection is and in this case you know with this uh SARS-CoV-2 coming out a brand new virus no humans have had this almost everybody is in the s bucket then you have people that get infected uh no other ones that have all the uh the morbidity and mortality related to the disease and then you have a group r i i like to call them removed because they can be either because they've recovered and become immune from um to to the infection uh they may have died or 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 perished from their infection and no longer able to get infected obviously and there are people that could be vaccinated who've also achieved immunity and they can move between these different compartments um but you know for the most part you want to put as many people into that r bucket through vaccination and safe means so that you can remove the number of people that could be infectious and the manner the, how quickly people move is how infectious and uh, the 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 actual virus is and how much people are exposed and that's why we use those interventions such as wearing a mask and keeping our distance uh to reduce the chance of getting the the infection you know that I think you saw uh, this also with Dr. Schooley's slides but you know I it it always strikes me uh when I you know just do again a bit of the math then when you think that just by the case reports uh with this most latest you know sort of uh, uh number almost 10% of people in the US have had COVID-19 um and when you think of how many people have died about it 1.7 out of 1000 people that's almost 1 in 500 people have died of covid-19 and if you think about that it's like somebody in your neighborhood you know on average would have died and and every neighborhood in the united states where somebody has happened it's just mind-boggling statistic i and i took that population from the ticker from the census bureau that 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 ticks up rather than the most recent census uh but we know that it doesn't affect everybody uniformly right we know that people that are older are much more likely to die and uh so you see a dramatic increase in deaths over the age of 65 but uh and also hospitalizations are much higher in, in in those that are older uh but that's actually not where most people are infected you see the bulk of people that are infected tend to be the people that are in the in the middle age groups 18 to 64 these are all uh relative you know chances of infection related to uh the pediatric group of 5 to 17 uh now i wanted to hone down to san diego i know some of you probably are from san diego but i want to use this as a base case to see to understand the epidemic more uh and how we think about this in san diego we've seen uh you know uh, uh again the the same thing as the, as the rest of the country sort of this leveling off of number of cases but we uh as a few days ago the county was reporting 273 cases 708 and maybe many of you do look at this website from the county because it is very informative and if you look at uh you know what i put on the inset of the of that graph you'll see that when you who's who actually had uh the case you know uh infections that reported to the county the highest rate was in the age of 20 to 29 so the bulk of people that have the covid are not necessarily uh you know the, the people that are over 65 in those highest risk groups but they are of course the ones at most risk that we needed to protect but this will come back at when I, in, in later slides in term and it's an important point 
Now, uh, here's sort of the epidemic in San Diego. We started off with our first public health order back in March 12th, 2020. And then uh, it, it grumbled along. And, and as you can see, we've had these number of spikes. Uh, and then we had this new sort of tier system of, of deciding about uh, interventions and uh, uh, what kind of public health interventions needed to be done. That started in September and we immediately entered into what called the red tier here in California. Um, and then quickly in the uh, late fall, winter, we had the huge spike there and that became the purple tier. And you've probably all been aware of the, of the implications of that where we uh, have to, you know, uh, not go to restaurants, et cetera. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, that has changed. And more recently, we've had some rapid declines in case rates and, and, uh, that, uh, and other factors that have led to us being able to be more liberal with the people being able to have higher capacity at restaurants and bars, et cetera. Uh, although there's some concern about people getting back and mixing uh, for potential, you know, second uh, waves or third waves uh, that we've seen in some other parts of the country already. This is just the last, you know, about month or so, because it really shows you, because you can't see how low it is there, right? So this is the number of cases that are being reported per day in San Diego, and it bounces around depending on, you know, probably different uh, thing, factors, such as, you know, the day people are open to report. But, you know, we've come down to this level, where we're at two to 300 in the last few days or in, 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 in April here. So that's been a remarkable re reduction compared to those peaks way back. Uh, now it seems in, in, the, in the middle of the holiday months, uh, you know, in December and January. So we've made a great deal of progress, but I think from my perspective, I was trying to think, well, you know, what's gonna happen next? Are we expecting another big bump? Uh, are we doing a good job of controlling this? What's going to happen? So uh, I wanted to look into the, more into those numbers. The other part, you, you know, that is an indicator of how well we're doing is what percentage of people that are testing are actually positive. And this is usually from the viral testing that, you know, get that nose swab. And uh, again, we've seen this dramatic improvement here in the, in the, in the past month where we're down to 2% or less in some cases on some days that uh, of people that are testing in, in the county that are positive uh, for the uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. So that's, a, that's a, again, it looks very good, doesn't it? But the question is, will that last? And that's certainly why, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk to say, continue with uh, your mask wearing and all your precautions as much as you can. Some of the really good things we're doing, I, I, in, in, at least in San Diego, we're doing a pretty good job of vaccinations. I, I think there's been a lot of efforts through UC San Diego to help start up the super sites, et cetera, and then other, other healthcare providers in the, in, the, in the county that have stepped up. And right now, uh, you know, just a few days ago here, we're saying that there's uh, you know, almost 720,000 people that have got at least one dose of the vaccine, if it's a two-dose vaccine. And then and uh, there's a, you know, 1.181 million people here or 44% of, of, of their county population that has got at least one shot. And that's important because, you know, that one of the slides that came from Dr. Schooley you saw is from the data from um, the Moderna vaccine where you really saw that people were responding to vaccine at day 12. So even though there's this two shot regimen there is appears to be some separation of the data points very early on after the first shot. So there probably is some immunity. Doesn't mean you should go with just having one shot, but uh, 
it does mean that that the immunity is starting very early on for these people. And many of these people may have uh, levels of immunity. Uh, although, you know, you have to go with the indication for, you know, how it was approved, and that still should be the two shots. Uh, of course, some countries are having to consider going with just one shot for everybody because they have scarcity of vaccines. We have overabundance of, of, of vaccines. In, in the, well, I wouldn't say overabundance, but we are pretty well situated compared to other countries in the world. Uh, I was, I think I, the other day I was seeing that uh, Japan has only had, you know, less than 2% of people uh, vaccinated in total. Now, this is the back in the envelope kind of uh, calculation. I think we still call that, or at least uh, it, it, I do. Uh, so at the beginning, they were thinking that to gain herd immunity, that means the amount of people that need to be in that R group or that, you know, remove group through vaccination or having infection uh, to start to quell the epidemic. Uh, a big factor that drives that, though, is the infectivity of the virus. And so when we get these new variants that have come on, what, what, how that impacts is, well, one, you start seeing those cases again because it's spreading faster, but it also means you need higher rates of herd immunity. So even though it said 70%, we're probably more towards 80% or more. It's hard to say where we're at with the new variants, depending on how prevalent those are in the community. But then I wanted to go and try to actually figure out where are we at in terms of achieving herd immunity. And uh, I did sort of my most cons more conservative estimate of this uh, by looking at how many people have got both or complete vaccination, adding that to the number of reported cases. Um, another fact that we haven't really covered as much is that uh, there's about a 10% chance of reinfection in some studies where they show people that have had previous uh, COVID-19 uh, were able to get reinfected. And similarly, depends on the vaccine, but I was kind of, you know, estimating that about 10% of people who have vaccinations may also could potentially get infected. So that sort of discounted the overall number of people in the R group by about 10%. So, um, and I didn't necessarily try to adjust for, because I don't want to get too fancy, because I want you guys to be able to do this at home, is that, you know, there may be some overlap. Some people that have had COVID-19 are also getting vaccinated. So they are counted kind of twice in, in, in that calculation. Also at the rate of about say 200 a day and a 10 day window for clearance, because in clinical practice, when we see our patients, we're saying, well, you know, 10 days from the day of your, your, your symptoms is when we can start talking about, you know, having you go out of quarantine so that you're no longer infectious. Because as you saw that, that diagram of virus really clears over the last seven to 10 days, uh, and really it's the, it's, it's the inflammation component that really drives some of the more severe symptoms. But at those at the, in later phases, they may not longer be as, as infectious. So I said about 3,000 people may be infected at any given time here. Based on that, of course, that's pretty rough because we can't, it, that's hard to measure. Uh, but that, then you subtract that from the total population, you see how many people might still be susceptible. So in this scenario, we're looking at about 33% of people uh, possibly are immune. Um, and that is, you know, only about halfway to our original goals and uh, uh, quite a ways off if we have this, this variant come in. So it really means that we still have to uh, continue to do all our, our prevention measures and vaccinate people as quickly as possible. 
uh, in a more, uh, sort of, I would say a little more realistic, I didn't go all the way to, to, to thinking that this, uh, that you could have uh, even more, in fact, people resistant, but in this scenario where you give the benefit uh, to the single vaccine, if you say the single people that have had a single vaccine shot at least, plus the people who have had COVID, and this goes comes into play that there's not everybody gets reported because uh, the number of people that have uh, COVID-19 uh, are often either symptomatic. And then of course, because of our screening programs, we pick up some of those asymptomatic people but there are also, you know, prevalence estimates where they've uh, done studies where they tested people uh, more sort of random sample ways and compared it to the case reports. And in some cities, the number of uh, the prevalence seemed to be 10 times greater than what the case report was saying. Uh, more conservatively, I said about 40% of people, they say, are asymptomatic with their infection. So they would they're potentially not get tested. Of course, that, you know, some people are just getting screened, even if they're asymptomatic, like we do in our return to learn uh, protocol. That's why the whole idea why we want to test those people is to pick them out earlier and take them out of uh, circulation so they can spread it. But say there is about 40% of people that are asymptomatic and uh, are, are on top of the people that we know from our reporting. So this allows us to sort of uh, adjust up our calculation of a number of people that might be resistant to uh, infection at this given time to the current variants that are that are that are going going forward. So that gets us closer to 55%. And if there's more asymptomatic people or people that we didn't really diagnose uh, that are out in the community, you know, this may be higher. So that gets us much closer to it. And, and some of the data you're seeing in terms of a reduction in cases do kind of correlate with uh, us doing a pretty good job uh, between vaccinations, uh, adding to the people that have already had it. That, that we may be getting a much smaller pool of susceptibles. And those are probably being, you know, more and more into the younger people that have not even had the opportunity to get vaccinated yet. And some of the, the newer uh, outbreaks in the other states you're seeing, like such as Michigan, seem to be in those younger groups that are, are getting it. Uh, of course, they do have lower mortality. So uh, the long-term goal, I mean, well, the short-term goal was we need to vaccinate people that uh, are at high risk of having uh, morbidity, mortality, and that's why we're we're trying to protect those that are most vulnerable. But at this stage uh, of the of the game, we're really trying to get to everybody that is that is more in the reservoir uh, of of infection, and that includes, like as I as I pointed out, a lot of the people are sort of more in the in in the uh, middle age groups, and eventually, hopefully, getting to the, to the. Uh, the pediatric group, that would be a huge breakthrough. If we want to get kids back to school, we probably have to start getting those vaccinations out there. Now, I also wanted to do the numbers on this J&J &J vaccine. Now, you know, you heard about that there's this new uh, concern about having uh, this glutting disorder uh, with, uh, in particular, it appears women of uh, premenopausal women uh, six cases of, of, of clotting out of 6.8 million. And it's not just your DVT or pulmonary embolism, which we can usually treat most people with, like with anticoagulants. This is something that also is associated with low platelets. So it's a much more serious uh, type of clotting disorder. And of course, there's people that have died. And this is somewhat similar to what we heard from the AstraZeneca and concerns that came up from the EMA. But what does that tell us in terms of you uh, should you get this vaccine? And obviously it's on pause right now, but what they're probably thinking about is, you know, what's the risk versus benefit of this, of this vaccine? So if we just take it 
on average, and that's about one case per million that have had of the clotting. There was another case, I think, in the news today, so that might be seven, but I don't know how many, uh, what the uh, denominator is on that. So that's uh, about the rate of this clotting disorder. Um, but of course, you know, if half of that, uh, if it's only in women, then you're thinking, well, it's really six out of, you know, uh, 3,400,000. And if it's only within the certain age group, it could be even, you know, half of that. So this could actually be more closer to three to four cases per million for uh, the high risk group. So that has, that's an important consideration. Then I try to think of, of this through, well, what what you're counting, what's your risk? Your real risk is having, you know, the worst risk is dying from COVID-19. And in San Diego, we, we, we went through and we showed you the numbers so I can go back and do that. I back calculated what they're using as the, the population just through their numbers of uh, percent of, uh, of vaccination. So it came up sort of a number of what they're looking at is the population in San Diego at 2.7 million. And if I, and then if we get, if 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 we kind of grumble along at this current rate, which is about 200 cases a day, we don't know if that might spike or maybe we're going to do a grab and it's going to go go away. But if you put that into an annual rate, uh, your risk uh, on on average would be about 2.7 uh, percent over the next year. Uh, that's lower. Remember back back in the uh, beginning of the year, this would have been much higher if it had continued at that rate. But right now we're kind of at this sort of lower rate uh, of, of infections uh, and that obviously could change. But then uh, what is your risk of death? So if you look at the number of, of, of deaths in, in, in uh, San Diego and put that over the denominator of how many cases reported, you come up with about 1.3% risk of mortality in COVID. And of course, this is a changing number. We have these better therapies um, and you know that's going to reduce that number. We have, we we also have you know different changes in in the demographics. Maybe who gets infected and that might change it. But again, we're trying to get uh, back of the envelope. You know, is this a safe thing? So if you multiply those out, it comes out with your risk of dying over the next year in COVID. Right now, at this moment, I would estimate something around 0.35 per thousand. So that's about 400 times greater than that uh, 0.88 per 1 million doses. So you got to say, well, that's, you know, you, that's pretty good. You have a, there's still some benefit versus risk overall. But when you start thinking of if this is really just in this one risk group of women, that could very well come down to maybe a hundred times or less, especially as uh, if the, if the epidemic continues to peter out. So it, it's, it's, Questionable whether women in that risk group, if that pans out of of, of what the what happens with the the J and J vaccine, they may have to be excluded from from getting this vaccine. And that's similarly, if AstraZeneca data looked the same, that would be it. But this is kind of how you would do the math if you wanted to figure out is this worth the uh, the, the bang for its buck, and well, it it, it or does it. Uh, do more good than harm uh, at a population level, but they, it certainly the the, the uh, determinants may very well determine be determined by whether it, you know it, it's affecting uh, a very special uh, sort of demographic. Uh, I wanted to end. Uh, I know we're talking uh, in a sort of a forum for uh, stem cells. So I wanted to sort of highlight that there is uh, a lot of funding. And I think, you know, all across the country, funders have turned towards COVID-19 projects to, uh, you know, help the cause. And and uh, CIRM was no different. They had a special call for 
uh, for discovery along COVID-19. And I, I found about 20 projects. I couldn't even fit them all here uh, on, on developing different therapies. Uh, I know that several people have been interested in giving uh, mesenchymal stem cells for it. Uh, there, there's some people that are clearly in very much more discovery phase. Uh, one thing that we've been involved at Alpha Clinic, of course, has been the convalescent plasma. We'd heard about convalescent plasma. We have been uh, recruiting, uh, you know, San Diego uh, residents for uh, the City of Hope study. And that's been uh, just starting the last few months. So hopefully that will continue and all these other efforts will continue. And uh, with that, I am going to stop and I thank you for listening. And I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Jameson and Schoolies for their uh, moderation of the questions. Yes, thank you so much um, to all three of you for your rather erudite presentations and really to provide really important insights into how this virus propagates itself and how we can protect ourselves from it. Uh, be before we turn to Dr. Schooley and uh, let him answer and uh, direct the questions, I did have a, a couple of questions for the three of you. Um, one for Dr. Smith. Um, you mentioned Tempras 2, which is uh, really stimulated by by androgens. It's upregulated by, by the male hormone. And just wondering about camostat mesylates effects and whether they're dependent on male or female. Uh, we know early on, at least, that it looked like the mortality rate was higher in men. And there was a suggestion that maybe because of temperance 2 upregulation, the setting of androgen expression, um, that that may have been part of the pathophysiology. What are your thoughts on camostat mesylate? Is there anything to suggest this serine protease inhibitor would have more effect in men than in women? Uh, we don't know yet. I mean, it's a good question. Uh, we've known for a long time that uh, men do worse uh, with this. It is better better to be female. Um, and perhaps some of this might be androgen related to Tempress, which is that protein that protease inhibitor is, is working on. Uh, but we don't know yet. But I do know that in all the chemostat studies, they're looking very closely at the um, uh, sex breakdown between men and women. The other one that's very interesting along those lines is the NK cells, which are immune cells in our body. Those also have different differences uh, between sexes and that some people are predicting that that's one of the reasons also why men don't do as well as women with um, COVID-19. There's also a cure haplotype, you know, a killer inhibitory receptor haplotype um, that determines how effective your NK cells are. Is there any suggestion, and I say this as a former bone marrow transplanter, that there's a specific cure haplotype that would protect against COVID? Has anybody looked into that by whole genome sequencing or by other means? You know, people are absolutely looking into it. So Galit Alter is running a whole uh, consortium to look at different cure haplotypes. Mm -hmm. And just a final question. Um, you have been involved in stem cell um, thoughts about how to target COVID and uh, the massive cytokine storm um, that occurs in some patients and trying to predict how we can use stem cell biology to understand um, not just the immune response, but the activity of this virus in specific tissues. How have you been tackling this, considering this is um, the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center and Stem Cell Program, a uh, closer look? Uh, can you think of stem cell features that we can think about to tackle the virus? Um, any kind of stem cell approaches? What are your Yeah. Thoughts? 
Yeah, yeah. So stem cells are, you know, magical little creatures that uh, have lots of special properties. And some of them are very, could be very useful for uh, COVID-19. And two different things that people are looking at. One is their uh, anti-inflammatory properties. Those seem to be very important and could really turn the tide in someone, let's say, who was headed down towards that uh, moderate, severe uh, disease pathway for COVID-19. So I know that there are groups looking at that. Another very interesting one is an application that I just put in for a grant looking at stem cells is to take progenitor cells, so stem cells, and package them with antivirals. Mm -hmm. And then those little stem cells go to the place where the infection is because they have those properties to do so, and then deliver those antiviral those antiviral payloads at the site where they're supposed to be. So it gives us a more targeted way to get the antiviral at the site of infection. Very clever, as usual. Uh, so I hope that gets funded. And certainly we should talk more about that for the Sanford Center and uh, partnering with you. Um, the question I have for Dr. Schooley has to do with antiviral deaminase activation and mutation of the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself at the position that Davey was talking about. Uh, there was a paper that came out of Italy in Scientific Advances suggesting that both Apobec and ADAR enzymes could actually mutate the virus. And there were suggestions of that by RNA sequencing. Um, what mechanisms do you think are really fundamentally important for really leading to all these viral strains, whether it's the UK variant or you know, whether it's the South African variant? What do you think is the main driver of the mutation uh, rates and exactly where we're seeing the mutations in the spike protein that Davey alluded to? Yeah, I can't tell you uh, exactly why we're seeing them in those particular locations. Uh, at this point, uh, empirically, we uh, observe the mutations. And then most of the time when the mutations appear in the population, when you start doing in vitro studies, you'll find if you have the right cell line that they have a bit of an advantage for the virus in human cells and they push forward. Uh, I'm a little bit of a simple guy uh, and think that a lot of what goes on with RNA viruses is they copy themselves sloppily. And uh, the ones that... Um, uh, help the virus uh, are ones that uh, are more likely to uh, move forward into new generations of viruses, and those that don't uh, are more likely to be a dead end. As Davey said, this virus is one that um, has a um, uh, is a little bit less, a um, uh, little bit is a little bit more um, certain about what it wants to copy because it has a little check mechanism. After it copies the, uh, as it's copying its RNA, it checks to see what bases are being added, and very few other RNA viruses do that. Uh, which is why it's much less variable uh, than, for example, influenza, hepatitis C in particular, or HIV. Uh, despite that, we have a lot of variation already, but that's what happens when you give a virus hundreds of millions of opportunities to uh, replicate um, hundreds of millions of time in each of the hundreds of millions of people who have the virus. Uh, this virus has done a lot of experimentation, and that's one of the reasons it's vital we shut it down uh, with uh, vaccines uh, and uh, our uh, public health uh, interventions. No more shots on goal. <laughs> so speaking of shots on goal, literally shots, um, what are your thoughts having led the Return to Learn program and global initiatives that will help to protect others from us and us from them um, on a booster? And what are your thoughts considering that RNA therapeutic um, based vaccines uh, can be made fairly quickly? We're going to need them. And uh, the two things we'll be driving it are how fast immunity decays. Coronavirus immunities is kind of a general phenomenon. Um, don't last as long as uh, 
immune responses to a number of other viral infections for reasons we don't understand. Uh, and with this particular virus, we have the variation we've been talking about. So to the extent that we see immune uh, decay over time, and to the extent that we see um, uh, viral variation, we'll have to be revaccinated. I would not be at all surprised to see us have to be revaccinated every year or two. It might turn out that people who are younger, um, like Dr. Smith, uh, would need to be vaccinated every year, and people who are older, like me, might have to be vaccinated every two or three hours. But uh, it'll it'll depend very much, I think, uh, on what we see over the next six months or so. The President Moderna today speculated that it would need to be yearly, um, but uh, I think it's too early to know for sure. And that was my third question is really, you know, I, I'm a hematologist, so I look after patients with blood cancers who are long-term persisters and, uh, or as Sheldon alluded to, are at increased risk for reinfection with the new strains. Um, what are your thoughts about checking for antiviral, not just humoral or antibody-mediated immunity, but T-cell immunity as the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is doing through their patient registry? Is this something that we should take on as initiatives um, here at UC San Diego? and, um, you know, further afield? It's something we need to understand. I mean, I have a patient that uh, contacted me who uh, receives um, rituximab for an autoimmune disease, and um, uh, I helped her get vaccinated with one of the mRNA vaccines as far away from her quarterly infusions as possible. And uh, when she finished getting vaccinated, I suggested that she at least get an anti-spike antibody uh, test, and her primary care provider said, well, the CDC said you shouldn't do that. Uh, and after saying, but that's to the general population, I'd, I'd like to know whether she made any antibodies at all. And she didn't. Mm -hmm. So there are people who, uh, despite being vaccinated, will still be at risk uh, and will need to continue to uh, take the public health precautions that has kept them from getting infected so far, both because they're still going to be at risk with the vaccine um, and also because if they do get infected, they will be more likely not to do as well. Mm -hmm. Your point about T-cell immunity is a very good one. I, I believe in T-cell immunity. We don't generally measure it as frequently as we should because it's harder to measure um, in a re reproducible way than, than um, to measure neutralizing antibodies. But I think they're very important, uh, particularly in preventing um, severe disease and helping uh, people recover from an infection. We don't yet know what the correlates of immunity are. Uh, how many T cells, how broad to the response be uh, in terms of um, the uh, epitope coverage or the, uh, if you start looking at uh, which cytokines get elaborated, um, the, uh, the, um, the uh, distribution of, of T cell immunity that is produced. And doing those studies will help us begin to uh, get a better understanding of what we should be looking at and being able to give people advice about whether they're protected and also to help us know when we should start thinking about uh, becoming uh, revaccinating people. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, all we can do is wait to see what the tempo of new reinfection is, look at those who are getting reinfected and try to do correlates, but it's, it's very much a, a work in progress. Right. So I just have two questions for uh, Dr. Morris before turning it back to you, Dr. Schooley, for the questions in the chat. Um, these are questions that have been asked prior to this session in anticipation of this session. Um, so Dr. Morris, you mentioned a lot about herd immunity and uh, how we can model uh, basically the um, spread of the virus using your um, you know, epidemiological standards for doing that. 
but how do we promote model behavior, so to speak? Um, a lot of this is behavioral. And, um, you know, you were saying that, um, you know, provided people are vaccinated, we're going to be in pretty good shape. But how do you change the paradigm so people aren't so afraid of the vaccine when we see that, you know, the you know, one in a million cases that Davey was talking about it, um, had uh, unfortunately adverse events from a type of vaccine where you get cavernous sinus thrombosis. You get a kind of clotting that looks almost like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with antiplatelet factor four antibodies. How would you tackle that as an epidemiologist that has a background in public health? Well, it's a lot about messaging that. And that's something that we didn't really go over or talk about as much is that we, we recognize there's disparities in, in, in who's getting uh, COVID-19. You know, we have, you know, uh, by uh, regions of the country, by race, ethnicity, by social economic status. And so we, and each of those has different uh, challenges. You know, well, first thing is you should always be honest, you know, tell, you, you need to let people know uh, what the real deal is and never try to uh, be, uh, you know, dishonest in, in, in saying what the, you know, is this really related to vaccine? Well, if it is, we should let people know that and let people be able to make their own decisions around uh, around getting which vaccine they want. I mean, it, it, it does, you do have to try to uh, get, promote uh, the vaccine in a positive way and, and, and explain uh, and, and have representatives and, and, and exposure in all those parts of, of, of a city or, you know, especially getting out to, to places where uh, there's a lot of resistance to vaccination. You know, when you have people that are, are you know, say anti-vaccine, uh, you know, you've got to group them in different ways. There's some people that are so strongly anti-vaccine that you'll never convince those people and so you can't really spend a lot of time there. You need to get the people in the middle who are, you know, are doubters um, to be better informed and make uh, better decisions uh, around, you know, getting vaccination for them and their families. And so, it, so we need to get to, uh, to out to those communities, have a good representation. And, and I think that we've generally been trying to do that and 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 it's been a quite a good job at UCSD where they've had the 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 uh, uh, vaccine sort of mobile centers go out I mean this is the kind of thing we have to be creative and it's not uh, the same model that we would have for routine healthcare where you have to go find a doctor make an appointment you know wait all day in the office you know we need to get out to those communities make it available in in in, in the pharmacies and and places that they are more used to and trust. Um, so I, I think we're doing a lot of those things and, and we're, we're seeing those successes. At some point, we're gonna reach it, uh, a point where we have a lot of people that, well, the only people that left will be those people that are very resistant to vaccines. And, and I guess the hope is that uh, we, that point will be when we reach herd immunity um, mm-hmm. and, already and, we, and we've reduced the, uh, you know, the, the epidemic significantly. Right. And just my final question to you before turning it back to Dr. Schooley for the questions in the chat. Um, I had a question as the deputy director of the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic here. Um, and the, what you showed is your slide for the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine approaches uh, to targeting SARS-CoV-2. Um, you've been running this passive immunity program so that we can link the Alpha Clinics that serve 20 million people in California. What do you see beyond that for accessibility? You were just alluding to their underrepresented minority 
populations, people that um, work in rural areas, certain plans to expand the alpha clinics and have community care centers of excellence. How can we interdigitate the programs that CHIP has really championed here? Uh, Davey has um, made sure that we have the most effective treatments possible. How do we get these to the outlining communities? You've seen some of the, the $5.5 billion in funding that was just approved in the state for stem cell research. How would you suggest that be done considering the epidemiological strategies that you've outlined? Well, I mean, each community is different, right? So you have, uh, it's going to be, what is this, the, the health system that's going to be most efficient in each uh, region? So sometimes that means, you know, uh, something like the health department, but, you know, if the health department is a very small department that is poorly funded, they're not going to be able to handle a lot of that. So maybe it's the uh, the university or the health or, or, or the insurer or the hospital or the community health group that is that that needs to be engaged in in providing you know standards of care and so obviously having good guidelines are really important to having national guidelines on on, on treatment and and implementing those through those systems um, you know with with, with uh, things that are more complex you know if we are getting to uh, cellular therapy stem cell therapies you're going to need centers of, uh, that are, are, are very good at doing those things. Um, and that's going to be a little more challenging to implement into uh, smaller communities and hospitals that don't have capacity for that. So there has to be a, a, you know, a, the capacity to, to handle these more sort of complex therapies. So ideally, we have strategies that, that, that are simpler, easier to, uh, to be implemented uh, you know, anywhere in, in the United States, in the world, you know, because there are a lot of, uh, you know, challenges, you know, that are going to continue. And if, you know, we're, we're talking about the variants, I mean, there's so much, you know, potential for more variants from the rest of the world, unless we can get the whole world vaccinated and the whole epidemic to, to drop. Well, thanks so much um, for, for that global perspective. Uh, speaking of global perspective, back to Dr. Schooley to answer the 11 questions in the chat or address them uh, together with this group. Thank you very much, Kat. Let me just uh, pass the first couple of related questions on to Dr. Smith related to vaccination, whether any of the uh, uh, efficacy uh, correlates uh, go with the severity of your local or systemic response and whether or not uh, the level of antibodies developed uh, in natural infection correlates with the severity of the disease? Yeah, those are good questions. So um, I got my second shot and after my second shot, I passed out for a day and a half and uh, it really annoyed Asher a lot, but um, I survived. And the good news about that strong reaction was that it probably meant that I was making pretty good immune responses, including a neutralizing antibody, which seems to be one of the possible um, suspects for that immune correlate that you were talking about. And the same thing goes is that people who have, unfortunately, severe cases of COVID-19 and survive, um, the silver uh, lining is that they um, usually mount a really strong response as well and are less likely, it seems, to get reinfected. However, um, everybody's different and everybody's immune responses are different and uh, including how long that immunity lasts. And let's stay with you, Davey, while we're on it. What's your take on interaction between COVID-19 and HIV uh, in terms of bidirectional interactions? 
Yeah, so there's been lots of, uh, dis- at the very beginning of the epidemic, being an HIV doctor, I was very worried about my patients in COVID-19, and I guess still am. And what we've seen is they do carry an increased risk for COVID-19, especially if they um, are not on their HIV medications or their HIV medications are not working for them. Um, but uh, people who are on their medication and doing well, their risk seems to be a lot uh, less. However, when people have HIV, they also have oftentimes other what we call inflammation-related comorbidities, such as heart disease, diabetes, uh, neurovascular disease, et cetera. And all of those comorbidities are also a risk for COVID-19. So it might not always just be the HIV that's causing the problem. It's the HIV causing the comorbidity that then causes a worsening of COVID-19 disease. And, and let me turn to Sheldon for a minute. Um, how do you think this 70, 80% uh, figure that's often tossed about for COVID uh, compares to other diseases that require high amounts of herd immunity? Can you, can you create a hierarchy among the ones we know about? Sure. I mean, there are certain things that are much more infectious and, and, I mean, those that are aerosolized are those the type of infection that when you have a virus that's aerosolized, like measles is a is a classic example, very infectious, aerosolized, and to get immunity and it is very hard. So we know we've been vaccinating people across the world, trying to uh, you know eliminate polio, measles, these common childhood illness, and we haven't done it yet. It's that hard. It has to be well, you know, closer to 100 percent almost to get that, extinguish those and, and declare, you know, those, uh, those viruses to be eradicated. Now, this kind of sits in the middle there, right? So this is kind of aerosolized, but, you know, compared to measles, chicken pox, um, it, it's not as quite as infectious as that. And then there, are, you know, it's probably sitting in, above though, things like, you know, flu, uh, colds even, me a bit, a bit more, um, and then, you know, common bacterial infections like strep throat would be much lower. Now, we don't have vaccines for those things, and, but, but we do have for some bacterial things. And so we are working, you know, there's, that's where you get so many vaccines as a kid because we can really uh, prevent a lot of infections. But, you know, we're far from eradicating most infectious diseases. We, of course, we thought we were doing great with smallpox, which is, again, a very infectious thing, but we, you know, was able to uh, completely eradicate. And part of that is because smallpox has no other reservoir other humans. And so that's another whole nother issue is if there's an alternative reservoir for these things, such as uh, we talk about bats uh, as a possible source uh, of SARS-CoV-2, you know, that's going to be really hard to totally eradicate this uh, coronaviruses ever. And that's why some things, some people that are working on um, vaccines that are pan-coronavirus are really a longer term, you know, goal because you know we're going to see more coronaviruses come out of the animal world, and we can't, you know, completely control them. So along those lines, there's a question uh, about whether or not this virus is a pre-indicator of worse things to come. And I think what we've seen over the last twenty or thirty years uh, is that uh, there are a lot of things going on in the world that are making uh, things that have been naturally occurring for hundreds of thousands of years have a larger impact. Uh, We have much more interaction uh, globally. Uh, This virus, uh, as I mentioned, was uh, initially uh, found around one one food uh, market in China. And within a couple of months, it was around the world. Boeing has done that for us. 
uh, we have a number of changes in climate uh, that push uh, vectors that normally uh, are found in more concentrated areas of the world into other parts of the world. Uh, go into, for example, uh, vectors that um, used to be found mainly in warmer climates are now found further north. And so pathogens are finding their way into populations of humans who've never seen them before. Uh, when we degrade the um, environment and people have to forage for food, people come in contact with animals they don't normally come in contact with that carry things like these coronaviruses that spill over into us. So a lot of the things that are going on around us are things that are going to uh, continue to cause these events to occur. It's gonna be very important for us to be uh, more prepared systematically for these infections going forward than to kind of stumble into each one and act like it's never happened before. Uh, so this is uh, this is a um, a bit of a wake up call about uh, where we are headed. It's not going to be an isolated event. Uh, there's a question here about a uh, per, uh, whether or not the risk of someone being vaccinated. Um, uh, what's their risk of transmitting the virus to other people? Uh, Sheldon, do you want to take that one on? Sure. I mean, it, it, it's. I mean, I, I I think it's pretty low. I mean, obviously, if somebody's been vaccinated, they'd have to be in this group of people that uh, can get infected. So there'd have to be failing the vaccine, or uh, you know, as we don't really know how long. I mean, I, you know, their immune status lasts with with vaccines or, or or from infection itself. So they might be able to get infected in the future, six months, twelve months. We don't know yet. Um, so you know, they'd have to first get exposed. Right now we have very low rates. It, if you got vaccinated, you'd one, you'd have to first fall into the group that the vaccine did not take hold in. You'd have to be exposed and get infected, which right now is it, it has declined significantly. Um, so that's biggest, your largest factor. Once you're vaccinated and you get infected, well, you're probably going to, you are at risk. Then you'd probably be, you might have a, a, depending on if you've developed any immunity, you might have different viral load and the viral load seems to correlate with symptoms and about, but more importantly, maybe how much antibodies you make and how immune status, you, you know, how good your immune status is going forward. So, um, so you're probably, you would be infectious to that group, but, uh, but upfront you've protected, you know, your family by getting vaccinated and you know, if if you want to take uh, additional precautions, continue to wear your mask and doing your uh, uh, public health uh, sort of uh, interventions in terms of avoiding uh, you know large crowded, uh, especially indoor spaces, with other people. So um, so, but overall, you know, there we've loosened up those guns. We know that vaccine people are protected, and we're saying that they can travel. Uh, across the country using their masks and, 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 and not have to get tested and a quarantine on either end. So we, we have good faith that, that they're very unlikely to get infected and therefore pass it on to their, their children. So Dr. Berg has a couple of really very interesting questions here. One is about whether or not we are anywhere near being able to come up with a nasal spray that would prevent infection that might be used prophylactically. Uh, and the other is uh, about the pathogenesis of these clouding defects. Um, I'm pessimistic about uh, topical nasal spray being able to be as effective as you'd like it to be, because I think that much of the transmission of this virus occurs with small uh, aerosol particles that are being inhaled deeply into the lungs. Yes, the virus does grow in the nose. Uh, there are ACE2 receptors there. Uh, but I think uh, the, um, the pathogenesis of this disease uh, involves a much broader challenge than just in the nasal mucosa with downward spread. Uh, the 
Clotting disorder is something that we're just beginning to learn about. Uh, there is um, a uh, finding that about, uh, well, the people who have this uh, off may be thrombocytopenic. So these are people with thrombocytopenic thrombosis. Sometimes you see that uh, with unusual responses to heparin and people who have antibodies, anti-PF4 antibodies. And the six women who uh, were investigated uh, in are being investigated uh, with the uh, vaccine, um, the uh, uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine had those antibodies. About 4% of the population have those antibodies, but obviously most people who have those antibodies don't get this complication because we're not having 4% of people uh, develop uh, this. Uh, it's one in a million. So what role those play, we don't completely know. It does raise questions about whether heparin is the treatment of choice uh, for people who develop this. And then finally, I would say adenoviruses themselves are not really known to be causes of, of are associated with cavernous sinus thrombosis, natural infection with adenoviruses. Um, it, we do see that more often in people who have infections of the, of the nasal sinuses and uh, uh, periorbital infections, uh, often bacterial infections in these areas, draining back into these sinuses. We know that, uh, as I said a minute ago, the virus does replicate in the nasal mucosa and up and go, it follows the olfactory bulb backward, which is why people lose smell. Uh, but why this would happen after a vaccine, unless there is some unusual concatenation of these people having to be vaccinated, uh, just having been vaccinated about the time they're becoming infected and having some local um, um, uh, more exuberant response. It's right now, it's a lot of hand-waving. And uh, I hope that we understand better because it'll give us a better idea about whether to continue using the vaccine. And if so, whether we should be targeting it. How safe is the vaccine for pregnant women? Uh, pregnant women were not included in the initial trials, uh, but they uh, have been, many pregnant women have been vaccinated. There's a registry looking at this and there's no evidence, at least with the mRNA vaccines, that there is any more um, uh, danger with these vaccines than in the general population. We do know that pregnant women uh, can uh, be more likely to have more severe disease. And so um, uh, people who are pregnant should talk to their obstetricians and gynecologists. But in general, my feeling is that uh, women should, uh, should be vaccinated because of the complications. Two last questions, because uh, we're running over here. Uh, one is uh, about uh, long COVID. Uh, how long will long COVID last, Davey? I, I don't know, but uh, all of the trials that I know of in terms of antivirals are looking at this long COVID question. So there, uh, it could be up to almost a third of people who get COVID. It's probably less than that. There's a little bit of selection bias, but a, a good number of people are having uh, these symptoms of COVID that seem to persist for quite a while. And the big question that we have in terms of antiviral treatment is if we, if we nip it in the bud early, can we get rid of those long COVID symptoms? And we just don't know. Um, part of that is also we don't really know what is the cause of those long COVID symptoms. Is it residual inflammation? Is it, is it what is it? Um, and those are things that are still have to be figured out. And John has asked a question about whether the uh, delivery with stem cell progenitors delivering antiviral therapies are underway. Has anybody stolen your idea and run with it? <laughs> Not that I know of. Um, if, if people want to do it, just send me the answer. But um, we're, we're still working on it. And then the last uh, comment here was from someone who uh, knew a man who had stage three Hodgson's lymphoma, got COVID in the UK, four months later was much better. Uh, is there any thought that some um, induction of innate immunity or some other um, 
uh, immune aberration could lead to um, a uh, clinical response uh, to people with uh, people with lymphoma. Davey, any any hand waving about the immunology of that? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't really know. It's 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 very interesting. I mean, your case that you talked about as well with B cell defects. Um, it, we do see people have very persistent um, infections and in people who have Hodgkin's or other, other B cell abnormalities that might be at play. The one thing that I would have to say, here, here's the thing that I want to end on. We are all in this world together. And there are some of us who are the vaccine's not going to work for, like people like your patient that had the, the B cell issue. And to protect them, we need to get vaccinated so that we don't spread it to them when it happens. Um, and that's the message I think that I would really like people to understand is that maybe the vaccine isn't always just for us. It's for um, your neighbor and your loved one. And with that, I think we're out of time. There are a couple of questions left over, but I think we should uh, respect your time. Mm -hmm. And let me turn it back over to Dr. Jameson. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schooley, Dr. Smith, and Dr. Morris. I think we covered so many aspects of COVID uh, that really haven't been presented in one forum, at least that I've heard in a long time. So this is extremely informative. Thank you so much. You know, I just um, wanted to make a comment uh, in terms of the stem cell biology of COVID, bringing it back to the stem cell seminar series that this is. There are platelet progenitors that are actually made in the lung, and there is a stem cell fight or flight response that is elicited in response to major infections and most likely in the case of COVID that could lead to mobilization of those stem cells to sites, as you were alluding to, Dr. Schooley, for the cavernous sinus thrombosis. So I think we really need to understand a lot more about platelet biogenesis when it comes to this particular virus. Uh, but just in general, I, it's so clear we just have to predict and prevent COVID propagation and um, whether you're doing the really complicated uh, mathematical modeling that Dr. Morris suggested or really coming up with massive vaccination programs as you have Dr. Schooley and testing programs and Davey, as you mentioned, really it's our collective responsibility to protect each other from a virus that really came from how we've become accustomed to traveling around the world and really not thinking about what we're spreading as we do it. So Dr. Schooley, I think that's the key point. And Davey, the, you know, it's really about caring about each other and um, getting back to our humanity, as I heard you say on TV not too long ago, and being compassionate. Um, so thank you so much for your time. You'll see that a lot of people will have questions um, after this, when they watch this on UCTV or YouTube. And I hope we can send you these questions from the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center and Stem Cell Program. Uh, we'll um, be able to make them available to you. Thank you so much for your time. <music>